are listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everybody, this is Mark from the Jersey Guys Podcast. I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne, as always, and today we're bringing you a brand new episode. This episode, we decided we were going to talk about the band Triumph and go through their discography, much like we did with a couple other episodes we've had here. And uh, and of course, at the end, we'll give our, our ratings, you know, and our rankings. So um, yeah, I mean, when we first started talking about doing Triumph, we, we thought about it and we said, yeah, you know, we, we both love this band. But I think that when we started actually listening back to the albums and refamiliarizing ourselves with them, I think Tom and I both kind of came to the uh, the realization that you know, kind of the the albums are a little bit spotty in a way, right, Tom? Yeah, I think one of the problems with with trying going back and listening to these albums so many years after the fact is that the songs that were good were so good, kind of made every album hard to catch up the other songs like every album had like three or four phenomenal songs and then stuff that was kind of fillerish right well it's it's funny because when you have a band like that where there's so many like i think it's like what three or four songs like maybe like lay it on the line um fight the good fight magic power like those are like just classic fm tracks right and you think about like, oh, you know, they're, they're a classic band. I, I love this band. But as you start like actually breaking the albums down, you start realizing there's a little bit of kind of like almost like aimlessness at sometimes, especially on the earlier albums. And when you look at you think about a band like Triumph, a, a three piece, a power trio out of Canada. Right. I mean, the only other bands, if you were going to look at Canadian acts, you, you got Rush and you got maybe Saga. Right. Um, from the 70s kind of bands that, that came out of Canada. And there is, I think, on the first couple albums, I heard similarities of of Rush for sure um, here and there. A little bit of like Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, let's let's get into talking about the albums. We'll go, you know, in, in chronological order, of course, like we always do. And, uh, and we'll give you our thoughts on them and, uh, you know, we'll go from there. So basically, Triumph started in 1976 with their debut album. And that was, it was a self-titled album at the time. Uh, later on, the album came out in, I think, the mid-90s on CD, and they actually retitled it uh, and called it In the Beginning. But it was basically their self-titled album, and that was 1976. What are your thoughts on that one, Tom? Well, I didn't come in from the ground floor with them. I came in with them about 79, so I actually went back to this record after I was a few records uh, deep with them. And I didn't even know this record initially existed because it was pretty hard to get in the States. I think it actually came out in Canada uh, in the early part of 76. It right. didn't come out in America till the end of 76, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, my thoughts on it were it was kind of Canadian hard rock of its time. I wasn't overly impressed with it. I thought it was saved by Blinding Light Show, which was a great song. Mediocre opinion on it. I did Definitely not something that blew me away. Emmett's voice wasn't developed 
the way we knew it to become. I would say very moderate opinion I had of this record. Yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, I, I think on, on this album and then actually the second album too, Rock and Roll Machine, which we'll get to in a minute, both those albums had, to me, had a totally different feel than what Triumph was to become. I, I think that those first couple albums I, I hear, and I, I said this to you not long ago, that the first album I have kind of like, I heard a lot of Led Zeppelin influences. Um, of course, it was the time. I mean, it's 1976, so you're going to get that. The first sound. Rush album had a lot of Led Zeppelin influences. Yeah, too. well, and you even hear, even on the first Triumph, I mean, you hear a little bit of yeah. the early Rush, too. I mean, Rush came out, their debut was 74, and here 76 is the, the debut Triumph album. So you hear a little similarities. I mean, they're a Canadian band, they're power trios or whatever. But right. I mean, even that first Rush album wasn't quite at the progressive band that they became. It was more of a straight ahead rock and roll. Yeah, album. no, and it had a lot of Led Zeppelin influences in it, without a doubt. And remember when those records came out, 74, 76, Led Zeppelin were, you know, in their their prime. Yeah, sure. Oh yeah, that was a sound but yeah, again, you know, you talked about it. I, I think there was a, a couple songs on the album that I, I like, you know, the twenty four hours a day is a is a decent enough song. Um, I think there's shared vocals on that one between Gilmore and uh, Rick Emmett. Twenty four hours a day, yeah. I think not, not as good as the Marshall Tucker twenty four hours a day <laughs> song, but it's it's a good song. And like I said, Blinding Light Show was a very strong song that I yeah. thought kind of you know highlighted the record. Yeah, that's a great an ep- epic track uh, with Moonchild there. It's kind of like a, a nice long yeah. song. Uh, but like there was song Street Fighter, which to me had a, a very early Rush feel to it. Yes. Uh, don't take my life, which I thought had great some great guitar work on it. Yeah, um, but those were basically the highlight songs for me. Um, and that was again 1976, and and the band, like again, I, I think they really maybe if you listen to that album, you probably will say this maybe isn't the triumph that most people probably remember or know the band to be. Um, they were still trying to find their sound. At least that's that's kind of how I take it. And I think that actually continued with the second album, Rock and Roll Machine which was 1977, a year later. Uh, now, this one is not a favorite album of mine at all. And when I look at the whole discography, um, what, what are your thoughts on Rock and Roll Machine? It's kind of a step up from the, the debut. Again, another record that I went back to at the time. I did not come in, come in from the ground floor with this band. I came in like 79 or 80 with the third album. So... A step up from the first album, Rock and Roll Machine was a pretty cool song. Texas Shaker was a good song. Uh, New York City Streets. It was good. I, was, I wasn't blown away, hardly. I, I thought the album overall, I mean, you had the cover with um, Rocky Mountain Way, right? Um, I, I don't know. To me, I, I really thought this album, and, and the one of the things I took away from it when listening to it again, uh, kind of familiarizing myself or re-familiarizing myself with it as we were preparing to do this podcast i I just thought the album overall i thought it kind of lacked focus to me and it's it's probably my least favorite album of theirs to be honest i I didn't think it it, it had much of of anything to offer as far as just again it had some early rush sort of influences here and there but i don't know i thought the songs were just kind of not like they were still trying to figure out what they were trying to oh, do. Oh, there's no question about it. And uh, definitely the cover of Rocky Mountain Way I could have done without because <laughs> having grown up in the 70s, the Joe Walsh version was on the radio constantly on FM radio. So right. that didn't that didn't help things <laughs> yeah. in my terms of, of the album. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, after those first two albums, I think the band kind of finally starts to gain focus, right? And kind of kind of figure out where they're going with their their sound and 
that brings us to 1979 and just a game comes out. And I know we were just talking about that before we started on air. Well, that's when I discovered them. I, that album I liked a lot. I remember when I first got it. I, I liked that album a lot. I lay it on the line, Young Enough to Cry, Just a Game. That was a really good record in my opinion. And that's when I was on board with them and became very interested in them. Yeah. I, I like the album and in, in listening to it again. I mean, like you said, you know, Lay It on a Line is obviously a, a classic uh, Triumph song. It's, you know, an FM song. You hear it constantly still till this day. Uh, a song like Hold On was great. Uh, I, 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 to me, though, I, for some reason, I just found that they were starting to find their sound and, and what they were going to become. But I think overall, it still was kind of a little spotty in my opinion, uh, stuff. And I, I know you talked about it, but uh, Young Enough to Cry, I know you like, and it's kind of a bluesy song with, with Gilmore singing, right? Yeah, I love that song. And actually. I, I know you like it. I, I just, for me, like it, it felt like it didn't really fit like Triumph in a way. Like I was like, it almost was like, where did that come from? And even like Suitcase Blues, right? I mean, it's it's named Suitcase Blues, but to me, it's like, it was like a jazzy song. Yeah, that song, I wasn't that, that big on. Um, yeah. It did, you know what? The album had great artwork, though. <laughs> it did. It did. It was a very eye-catching album, and um, it grabbed my ear and my eye. I was definitely a, a fan at that point. And that was actually the first album where they introduced the uh, the actual Triumph logo, right? Yes. Because the first two albums just had a mm-hmm. standard, regular font for their, their name. But yeah, they finally bring out that, that classic logo. Right. So that was pretty cool. We give them some points for that. <laughs> and then uh, now we go... Right into 1980, a year later. And this, to me, is kind of where the band... And I thought the title of the album, Progressions of Power, because I think this was finally the progression that they needed to, or wanted to get to, maybe. I don't know. But I, I like the album. And, and what were your thoughts on, on Not a big fan at all. To me, it was a it was a step down from the album before. Really? It didn't have the three or four real great songs that I thought the album before had. Um I was not, uh, th- this album kind of turned me, not off to them, but it wasn't where I thought they were going to go. Okay. Yeah, I, I thought they kind of were start at this point, I thought they kind of fa- found their way, but I mean, not quite there, but it's a little, it's, it was a little more rocking overall than maybe what the previous albums were, but I thought they were kind of taking that, that next step to things. So I... I don't know. I kind of liked it. I thought it was a good album. I'm not going to say it was a favorite of mine, but I thought it was pretty good. Um, Now, I mean, you're talking 79, 80. You go right into 1981, and now you have Allied Forces. And that's probably maybe one of the quintessential uh, records of Triumph. What would you say? Yeah, I think that was the album that that started to break them in the States. Because I, I remember hearing a lot of these songs on FM radio in the States at the time. And I noticed like other people were talking about them. They, they were a phenomenon at one point in Canada, a little bit, I guess, starting at this point and moving forward, they never really broke the States anyways, near the, the way they did in Canada. But this album definitely started to put them on the, on the map in FM radio in the United States. Yeah. Well, I mean, you had magic power, um, fight the good fight. Those are two songs that you still hear on the radio Allied today. Allied Forces, right? the song. Oh, Allied Forces is a great song. Ordinary Man. That's a great, great song, song too. Say Goodbye. Yes, there was some There was some really good songs. Yeah, it's a terrific album. album. Yeah. 
I, I maybe I, what do you what do you think about the production on that? What is your opinion on the production on that album? Uh, the production on this album, like, like some of their albums, lacked. Yes, that's what I was going to say too. My favorite production uh, of all their albums was just the game because it had such a big fat bottom end on on the drums and the bass, and I I, I found a lot of their records didn't keep that sound. And for a band that was basically a three-piece with some keyboards thrown in, I really liked that bottom-end sound that Just the Game had. This, I think they actually wasn't Allied Forces. That actually got remastered a couple times in their career, right? Like along the way. I think it got re- reissued a few times. Yeah, I'm sure. Remastering yeah. Because, yeah, I, I, that's the one thing that caught me in listening back to it again. I, I just thought that the production on it lacked a little bit. Unfortunately, and, and it had such great songs, so I was kind of yeah. No, yeah. it was a terrific record. Yeah, and now now you, I mean, th- this is a band you talk about. You know, some bands take two, three years between albums. I mean, they were just kind of rapid fire, right? You got seventy nine, eighty, eighty one. Bring us up to nineteen eighty two, and you have the Never Surrender album. And what were what were your thoughts? Uh, that, on that that album, I liked this production better on that album. It yes. had a, it had a, a bigger bottom end. Yeah, another very strong record. When the lights go down, uh, never surrender. Uh, that was a another. Now they were really starting to. I call this like their their meat and potatoes period, where they were strong, consistent uh, performers. The records were really good. This was the the beginning stages of of the best part of their career, in my opinion. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that. I mean, a world of fantasy is a great track. Like you said, never surrender. Uh, all the way, uh, writing on the wall. This, there were some really, really, really good tracks on that. You know what's funny about a band like Triumph, right? I mean, they have, and we talked about three or two or three songs, three songs, maybe Magic Power, Lay It on the Line, Fight the Good Fight. These are like songs that you still hear on the radio, classic rock radio today in the States. But I mean, there there was songs that maybe never got the push maybe, or never got as popular maybe outside of Canada, I would say. Maybe I'm sure they had radio play beyond those three tracks in Canada that I just mentioned. But but there's some songs on there that you, a lot of people maybe don't look at as being the quintessential Triumph songs, but there's some really good ones. Like I thought A World of Fantasy is... That, that is a really good song. I even forgot about that song. Yeah, I thought that was a great, great song. They, they kind of fell into the category. Like I, I First band that just clicks into my mind was Foreigner. Foreigner had become that type of band, too, that really nobody pays attention to the other ancillary songs that are on there because Foreigner, every album had three or four fantastic songs. And then the other stuff kind of gets gets lost. And I triumph to a degree, even in, the, in this really good period, there were a lot of great songs people forget about. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's a really good point. So that was 1982. They take a year off. I'm assuming the band was probably just, they were bigger at that point, probably touring a little more. So it took up their time a little more. So there's actually a, a year between that. They didn't do the rapid fire every year album release thing, but it, it takes two years. And now 1984 comes along and we have the, the the Thunder 7 album. So what was your feelings on that? Well, that album, that was yeah really the, the apex of their career, like within 84, 85, 86. Yeah. That album I love. Spellbound, Rock On, which is a song I, I love. Follow Your Heart. Yeah, this was when they were in full throttle mode. 
No, I, and you know, a great album cover too. We talk about the yes. album cover before yeah. that, that was a, to me, one of probably maybe one of my favorite album covers of theirs. Um, but yeah, you talked about spellbound, uh, follow your heart. Time goes by, uh, killing time. I think, you know, just some stranger in a strange land. That's a good song too. I forgot about that. Great yeah. song. And I thought this album too, this album was produced by Eddie Kramer. Right. So you finally, I think the band was kind of doing their own production along the way, right? Up Some of them point. they did, yeah. Yeah, and, and handling it themselves. And now you got a guy like Eddie Kramer, who's a legend, and he comes in, and I thought that really gave a real boost to the production on this album. The production on an album was was really good, and the production on the follow-up album, which we'll, we'll talk about too, is also very good. Right. Well, now in between Thunder 7 in 1984 and the next album, studio album to come, which was The Sport of Kings in 1986, they, they actually released the... Uh, was it Stages, the live album, right, right, at that time? So that was kind of a little stopgap between those two albums. But but now, in, in like I said, 1986, you have The Sport of Kings. And, I mean, I, I want you to talk about that because I think we're both in agreement that this is probably the uh, the, the quintessential uh, Triumph album, right? Yeah, in my opinion, it is. I, I'm, I'm sure some people disagree with me, probably not tremendously. But this album, if I had to pick one out, and, and it is, whenever I go back to them, it's always the album I listen to. Yeah. To me, this was the closest thing they put out to a perfect record. And 86, it was a, it was a great year for music. And yeah, it was just a, a great record. Tears in the Rain. What Rules My Heart. Oh, what That's a great, a great song. song. Yeah. Somebody. I mean, somebody's uh, out there. I mean, that yeah, was the big it, single. It was a, a great record. If only. Record. If only. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. A great, a great song. song. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things. I, I yeah. just, you know, I was making my little list up and it was like, Take a stand, just one night. Yeah, take a stand. That would be another terrific song. Play with this the fire. was them. I mean, again, my opinion, your opinion. Yeah, this was them at their best. And unfortunately, as we'll talk about going forward, it was kind of the last great album by them, at yeah. least in my opinion. Well, I mean, now, and we we were just talking about this before we came on air, and when we talked a couple weeks ago, we we talked about the next album. So it's nineteen eighty six. You have the Sport of Kings. The next year, they come out, they follow up 1987, and the Surveillance album comes out. To me, I think when I first started, I mean, it, that time right there, 1987, it was just that that time period, that style of music, and, and the way they presented the, the Surveillance right. album, it just, it had everything that was 1987 in it, right? I mean, sound-wise, it was kind of going there. I, I think, and you talked about it, and I thought the album started out really strong, and as I thought the second half of the album, it, it really tailed off a little bit. But I mean, overall, I, I love the, the, the vibe of the album, but I know you're not such a big fan. Not right? a big fan of this record. And it wasn't until years later I found out how much was really going on uh, in their camp at, at this point. There were outside writers that were brought in by the record company, uh, which I know Emmett was vehemently against. Mm. He's made that known in a lot of subsequent uh, YouTube interviews and i think this was the beginnings of the riff between him and moore because moore was on board with it and since he was on board with it they fed him a lot of the what were considered the better songs on the album to sing yeah and it it had the potential to be something really good because i could have seen them going forward really melting into that 87 88 89 slick, mm -hmm. melodic, hard rock. They kind of, 
you know, were made for that. Oh, they were would, primed for it, especially after the the Sport of Kings album. Right, right. and and the, the the sound was there. There, there was yeah. probably more keyboards than because keyboards always kind of were in, in some songs, not in other songs. Uh, the, the groundwork was set. I just don't think the songs were there. That's the problem I've always had with that record. Mm. Just think the songs are very average. I would say if this was a band that was an unknown band, it would kind of be a cult favorite band that over the years people would say, well, remember that record? But for a band of their magnitude, I just thought the songs on that album were lacking. I, to this day, I mean, nothing stands out of my head. I have some songs that I could remember. Yeah. But I just thought the songs were lacking and there was a big division in their camp. I, I In subsequent interviews that Emmett has given, he has said that he already knew he was on his way out. Uh, yeah, I, I thought again, and I said before, I thought the album, to me, it started out pretty good. I mean, you had Never Say Never, which is the lead track on the album. I thought it was a really good song. Uh, headed uh, for Nowhere. Carry on the flame. Carry on the flame. Uh, yeah, yeah, let the light song. shine on me. Those were probably the, the early song. You know, if you look at the album, those are, are songs that are in the early part of the album. And I thought as you get sort of the second half of the album, I, I thought it was a little, maybe a little paint by numbers, right? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I, I, the song, and, and to, to hear that they brought in outside writers to this day, who I don't know who they were yeah. exactly. But, but we've seen this, you know, we talked about this in a Europe discography, their last album. There were supposedly outside writers brought, brought in, and that record was probably their worst record. Right, right. So, well, so now at this point, you have uh, Rick Emmett leaving, right? So, I mean, this is you, you got a band that's that was a, a three piece, the same band throughout their whole career up to this point, no changes. Now it's like you, you, you touched on it a few minutes ago. I mean, there was some division in that camp at that point uh, between what Gilmore and, and Rick Emmett. Um, or maybe just as a whole, like you said, the whole idea of bringing in the outside writers and everything. Uh, Emmett was totally against that. And he leaves. <laughs> and now he's gone. And, and now we're into the 90s, right? There's like a five-year break between yeah. Surveillance and their next album, which was 1992's uh, Edge of Excess. And at this point, you have just Gilmore and Mike Levine, right, left. And they bring in uh, Phil X, who... A Canadian guitar player played with uh, Aldo Nova. I think he uh, was in um, Frozen Ghost. Also. Frozen Ghost, yes, definitely. Yeah, he was with them. Um, of course, nowadays for the last ha- handful of years, he's been with Bon Jovi. Uh, but he comes in on Edge of Excess. And what what are your thoughts on that? Nineteen ninety two. My thoughts are a lot different now. Twenty nine years after the fact, because I remember when this record came out, I I liked it. I probably haven't listened to it in quite a long time, but I I did have to go back and listen to the this record since we were doing this podcast and it it didn't resonate with me the way it it maybe did back then maybe i was just happy that there was a new triumph record but quite honestly to pull no punches would it the the absurdity of of a triumph record being released without rick emmett yeah <laughs> uh is 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 mind-boggling and Gilmore now being the front man, while I always like Gilmore's voice, I, I, I like the 
disparity between the ultra high of, of Emmett and, and his voice, which he had a nice sounding voice, not a great voice, but a nice sounding Yeah, he was more voice. of a, a rock and roll Right, he was a rock and roll guy, singer. Whereas like Emmett was maybe a little more melodic, right? Right, uh, yeah. I mean, Rick Emmett had sort of a voice, I'd say, more like in the line of like Tony Mills and... Uh, like a Steve Perry. Even Steve and, Perry. You know, and, that style and, of voice. Uh, Fergie yeah. Fredrickson, yeah. you know, like those helium-filled vocals, <laughs> which... We happen to be guys that like that because we're cut from that grain, but I know that not everybody does like a steady diet of that. But going back to the record itself, I I listened to it actually this afternoon because I didn't want to uh, be uh, ill-informed before one of our podcasts. So um, (laughs) it definitely didn't resonate with me the way it did 29 years ago when I got it. I I really do think back then it was, the scene was already changing and um, I was probably happy just that they were still doing melodic hard rock. It's not a terrible record by any stretch of the imagination. I can't see how releasing that record, they could have thought it would have done anything with A, Emmett out of the picture, and now the drummer, who was a guy that was probably in and around 40 years old at the time, and kind of, you know, looking like a most drummers look, and using <laughs> him as your front man in yeah. the videos was going to work. And um, it's just, a, not it's not a bad record. But under the moniker of Triumph, yeah. it's, it's a disaster. And it probably should not have ever been called Triumph. But, you know, there's a long, long laundry list of bands that held on to names for way too long. Right. And this is just one of them. Well, like you said, you know, it's 1992. I mean, at that point, you're well into the whole sort of scene changing. Music is changing. I mean, especially in the States at that point, oh, everything's yeah. transitioning over to the more of the grunge sound. So, yeah, I mean, at that point, you know, I, I thought the songs themselves, they were a little, little cliche at times, a little paint by numbers in a way. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I didn't really take, uh, I don't come away from that album as something that I remember songs or individual tracks on so much. It's just something that was kind of there for me. Yeah, it was kind of a, it was a sad way for a band like Triumph to end their, their recorded discography, right? Um, along the way, I mean, that, that was 1992. And I mean, that's a long time ago. And they, they really, I mean, only played like what they got back together in 2008. They played two shows in Sweden and in uh, Rocklahoma, in Oklahoma. Right. Um, I actually got to see the show in Oklahoma, which was cool to, to see Triumph. But uh, they, they weren't maybe, you know, they were far from being at the top of their game at that point. I mean, it was kind of a, almost a nostalgia thing. And they, they were a little rusty. You could kind of see it when I saw them there. In Rocklahoma, but yeah, yeah, they didn't really do anything. I mean, at that point, you're you're how many years past it at that point? I I actually don't own that DVD because I saw parts of it, and to me, it was um, that was a Sweden rock one, right? Yeah, it was. There was a lot of a lot of a lot of rust, and um, it's probably one of those things that would have been better left the memory of the band. Yeah, well, it's almost like they were kind of running through the, you know. Yeah, it, it was, it was you know, I think I, I think Emmett had been away from the scene way too long. Uh, his voice changed. Um, his looks changed. It, it just, they, they, they seemed under-rehearsed. Yeah, it's, it's like I said, I don't even own the DVD for that reason. <laughs> now, what, let's talk about this, because we, you know, we've talked about it, and we touched on it, and everybody knows if they're, they're even a casual fan. They, they know that Triumph had, two lead singers, you know, you had Gilmore, who was the drummer, but also sang lead on a number of songs. You had Rick Emmett, obviously, guitar player, singer. I guess it's it's funny when you kind of look at it like that, because, and we talked about this not long ago, and you also had Rick Emmett 
the, the guitar he played was kind of like a jazz guitar, right? And it's not really, didn't really fit into like rock and roll, so to speak. So how, how does that like kind of like... They were a strange band. And I, I used to say that even back in the day. And we had a conversation about this, I guess, about a month ago when we were first talking about maybe doing Triumph. Um, they were a strange band. And if you visually look at them, they kind of kind of ran in the different direction of what a lot of hard rock bands were of that direction of that time you had emmett who was playing you know uh, a hollow body jazz guitar yeah. through like uh, a wall of uh, marshall stacks <laughs> you, you had a um, kind of awkward looking bass player at times uh <laughs> The big bushy mustache. Yeah, right. And and you know, they did they, they kinda tried to pull off the rush thing with him playing some keyboards and the Taurus pedals. And they were both Jewish. And and, and, and they were. Oddly <laughs> enough. Oddly enough. They, right. Two Canadian uh, Jewish guys. Um I, I I always used to get hysterical laughing at Gilmore, who had one of the most gigantic drum sets on the face of the earth yet he was a, like a very basic rock and roll player he'd have like you know 70 drums on the stage and play like four of them um and anytime drummers sing with any consistency in a rock band there is a certain awkwardness to it because you're just not used to the voice of the band coming from behind a right. drum riser and and it does hinder the drummer too because the oh, drummer definitely. really can't play anything other than very basic you know a, a, a typical you know you know click beat yeah to to the drums so they did have something i don't know if awkward may be too strong of a word but definitely there was something offbeat to their their sound at times their appearance and their whole presentation. Yeah, it made it kind of cool. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not bashing them for the. I, I yeah. like originality, but there was, there was definitely something offbeat in their whole presentation as a yeah. whole. Well, we we don't actually title our podcast right but I, I was thinking about this and this has been going through my mind for the last like two weeks as we were preparing to kind of get this podcast recorded. And I, I said if we did use titles for our podcast. This one for me would be what a long, strange trip it's been. Right. <laughs> when you're talking about Triumph, right? Right. Because it, and like you, you, it's perfect, strange. I mean, maybe a little bit of a strange band, you know? Yeah. Well, I see, I like them when they, around the Sport of Kings tour, when they brought in Rick Santers as right. a second guitar player. I thought it beefed up their sound, and I, I think they needed that. You know, like the power trio thing is, is, is tough. Yeah, and if you're gonna stick with that, you, you're gonna you're gonna sacrifice in, in the live setting. And they did; they were a band that did. I, I would have even liked to have seen them add a keyboard player, no, if, for sure. if not a second guitar player. And they at that time, I mean, 1986, 87ish, they were they were in the middle of, of arena rock period, and they were they were playing arenas. They were playing the the, the arenas in the states here, right? Headlining tour. Uh, I think Ingve uh, Malmsteen opened for him in, in that tour. Uh, yes, I mean yeah. they had been an arena act in in Canada, in Canada sure. probably from like eighty one forward, right? But not not in the states to the later, yeah, like you said, eighty six, eighty seven. So yeah, I mean that that's that's our our triumph uh, discography discussion, and I guess we're gonna go. You want to go first and and give your ranking one through ten. Uh, one through yeah, 10, I mean yeah. anybody that's been listening to me ramble on could probably figure out what what it's gonna <laughs> be, but. Uh, number one, I had Sport of Kings. That's, in my opinion, their all-time best record. My favorite record. Number two, I had Thunder 7. 
Number three, never, uh, never surrender. Number four, just a game. Number five, Allied Forces. Number six, Rock and Roll Machine. Number seven, Surveillance. Number eight, The Debut. Number nine, Progressions of Power. And number 10, Shocker, Edge of Excess. Okay. Yeah, now, um, for me, we I, as we went over these before we started recording, we were, some of the things we were pretty much spot on or, or close to, one or two, you know, right. up and down rankings, but I'll, I'll go through mine now, and, and we'll post these, of course, on, on our Facebook page, and, and we want you guys to discuss them, too. Let us know your thoughts, you know, what you guys think about their, their 10 albums and, and their your rankings, you know. But for me, uh, number one, the same as Tom, was The Sport of Kings. Number two was Allied Forces. Number three was Thunder 7. Number four, uh, Never Surrender. Number five was Surveillance. Uh, number six, Just a Game. Number seven, Progressions of Power. Uh, number eight, uh, Triumph for the debut, which also known as In the Beginning. Uh, number nine was Edge of Excess. And for me, number 10 was Rock and Roll Machine. So, yeah, I mean, we, we differed probably greatly on, on Rock and Roll Machine, right? The most, I, I would think, probably. Well, you know, the best way I could really talk about their career is the first five records that, at least in my my top ten, were fantastic records. And the bottom five, all flawed in various degrees. So I could probably jumble up six through ten and it wouldn't make a a huge difference. You know, that's really how I break up their career. They had five really standout albums and then five albums that either didn't move me or had songs on them I liked, but had a lot of flaws amongst the record. Yeah, that's interesting. That's that's a good way to look at it. Um, one other thing before we end up closing this episode out is I did want to mention, and, and we, we talked about this somewhat recently, and we talked about how the band did come back to play two shows in 2008, uh, but they also... Many years later, 2019, they actually got back together briefly uh, and they played at the Metalworks uh, studio in Mississauga, Ontario, which is uh, the studio that Gilmore owns and has owned for a very long time. They did three songs in the studio. They had a bunch of fans and those songs were recorded for the uh, documentary DVD that's that just came out uh, back in September. So hopefully that's something that I know it had a limited run. It started out in Canada and I think it had some uh, spot plays throughout uh, the United States here. But I hopefully that's something that's going to be out on, on DVD soon. Yeah, I'm hoping for that, too. I, I haven't seen it. I would love to see it. I, I have to figure it it will make its way to DVD. Sure, yeah. But that yeah, that's something I'm definitely looking forward to, too. So, And I think they, from what I read is those those three songs that they played that night in 2019 are, are going to be featured on that Do you know that what documentary. they did? What song? No, I, I read them, but I, I I don't remember. But yeah, that that's you know that that's something to look forward to. So that was our uh, our discussion of the Triumph discography uh, here on the Jersey Guys podcast. And uh, thanks for listening. And we'll be coming at you guys uh, next week with a brand new episode. We've got a couple guests we're uh, in the pipeline and we're talking about and trying to schedule right now. So uh, we'll get to those, and uh, we'll see you guys soon. <laughs>